ought to be thankful that we have kind, compassionate shepherds here that are concerned about us and concerned about our future and concerned about our health. And uh, in light of that, since they've recommended we not shake hands, we're from the South, and so instead of shaking hands, I'm just going to wave like we do when we're passing by. Uh, because of that, after services, instead of me going to the back and making everybody shake my hand as you go out, I'll just go and take my seat like everybody else. But uh, I'm very thankful that they're concerned about that. What concerns me even more is how much effort has been placed upon this from the highest parts of not only our federal government, but of this world I would to God that everybody would understand the importance of being a Christian and being prepared to go to heaven. That's the most important thing that you and I can do is to prepare for eternity. As you come to the book of 2 Corinthians, there are strained relations between Paul and the church at Corinth. Paul is facing a church that has done some things that is not in light of God's word pleasing to him. And so Paul had to write a letter to the Corinthians. He did not want this visit to be another sorrowful visit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, But I determined within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, Then who is he who will make me glad but the one who's made sorrowful by me? Paul is really concerned that when he comes to Corinth, it not be a sad, difficult situation. And in light of that, Paul tried to do something. He wrote them so that they could see he really cared about them. When he wrote the first letter, he described it very vividly by these words. And I wrote this very thing, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over sorrow those uh, over those whom I ought to have had joy. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul said, I want you to know that the letter that I wrote you, our first Corinthians, was not written as someone who simply wants to say, you guys need to get it right. But it was because he loved them and he wanted the church to do well. He was concerned that Satan would get involved and destroy the church at Corinth. Folks, that is the bottom line of our lesson today. Paul was worried that the church would undergo a a real destruction from within by Satan and his seductions. So here's what we want to do. We want to look at the serious situation that had arisen. We're going to go back to 1 Corinthians and see the background behind it. Number two, we're going to look at sufficient punishment the passage that Brother Marty read for us just a few moments ago that described the result of what they were to do. And then last of all, the the most important part is to look at the satanic influences that can arise within a congregation. 
Let's begin now, and we're going to notice that the background goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, if you'll remember a few weeks ago when we were preparing for our Bible bowl classes for our children, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And there Paul describes by saying it is actually reported that there is fornication among you and such fornication is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You see there was a situation where there was a public flaunting of the fornication. A city like Corinth noted for the public fornication that was taking place because of the temple of Aphrodite. The fact that there would be temple prostitutes milling about through the city at any given moment. This was one that even shocked their sensibilities and it outraged the world. What had happened, it had devolved into a situation of pride and partisan division. We know the church was already divided. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and following, there were some who were saying, I have Paul, I have Cephas, I have Apollos, I have Christ. And they were all dividing up and they were being puffed up, he says, one against another. And this division was separating the congregation. And so it had a potential now for the whole church to be affected by the situation you get to verse 6, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you realize the influence that this could potentially have to destroy the church? Just like rottenness, we often hear the phrase, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch. The rottenness begins to infect. And that's what he's trying to describe here. But you follow through with this text and he had given instructions of how to handle that offender. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 and then verses 9 and 11, he said, For indeed, as absent but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done the deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ... He says, to deliver such a one to Satan. You get to verse 9. I wrote in my epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Verse 11. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's a fornicator, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. You see, Paul's concern here was to save the spirit. He was concerned with the church as a whole, but he was also concerned with the individual that was involved. He says, we want to save the spirit of that individual. And in order to do that, you have to deny them the company or fellowship that you would love to extend to them. The fact that we enjoy associating with one another, doing things with one another. But you see, the challenge here is to find the balance. Because you have to at one point warn, you have to convict, you have to say this is what you know is wrong. And yet at the same time there has to be love. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14 Now we exhort you brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak. Be patient with all. 
Oh, what a challenge that is to have on one hand the idea of what you have to do and yet you have to be patient. In 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. But he follows up by saying, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person that you do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You take what Paul writes the Thessalonians and along with what he writes the Corinthians and you see the point that he's trying to make of how you have to conduct yourselves. But now let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now pick up with verse 5 and see what Paul says here. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary you ought to rather to forgive him and comfort him. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. Now to whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. You see, this matter brought grief and sorrow upon the congregation. The congregation is struggling with this matter to the point where now it has become a burden. And the burden is, is they're not necessarily responding as Paul had intended. He says the majority that inflicted the punishment upon the offender was sufficient. It accomplished what it was designed to accomplish. It brought about the repentance of that person. And that was what God and the church ought to have sought all along. But now the church has a challenge. To forgive and let that person know he's forgiven. Paul wants him to understand you have an obligation. He said, I'm putting you to the test whether you'll be obedient in all things. I want to know whether or not you will do. You did what you were supposed to do in regards to the discipline but now will you do what you're supposed to do with regards to the forgiveness which leads me to verse 11 this is an important verse in this context last verse of this chapter lest satan take advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices lest satan should take advantage of us You have to realize that in all of this, Satan is sinister. He uses devices to destroy the Christian and the church. He is trying to undermine us. He's trying to undermine what we are trying to do. Listen to 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Be sober, clear-minded, clear-thinking. Don't allow yourselves to be uh, deceived by the devil's devices. Be vigilant. Keep your eyes open. Recognize what he is doing. He makes things look desirable, rational, sensible. And what ends up happening is, is that if you're not careful, you will say, you know, what the devil suggested is a pretty good idea. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, But I fear somehow, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. Do you remember what Satan did? He planted in Eve's mind a doubt. He planted in Eve's mind a desire. He plants doubt, he plants desire, and then the deception takes place. She saw that the fruit on that tree was good. It was to be desired to make one wise. And she took and ate of it. She gave to Adam and he also ate. You see, the devil's able to make things look and appear good. And in fact, when you get down to verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. You listen to Satan, and he sounds like he's saying something that God would say. And thus the deception. You see, Satan seduces us not to forgive. Oh, you, you shouldn't forgive. We can develop the attitude of the elder brother. You do remember the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15. You remember that the younger of the two sons went and asked his father for his importation of his inheritance. He took that, he went into a far country and he wasted that with harlots. He wasted it with riotous living. He came into one, he comes back to the father and the father receives him. But do you know what the elder brother did? Verse 15, or verse 25 of chapter 15. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came near and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. You see, it's easy to take the position of the elder brother to say, I've never made a mistake. Oh, better be careful there. Because Romans 3, verses 9 and 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. You're mistaken, elder brother. You have transgressed, maybe not 
in the same fashion, maybe not the same way as that younger brother. But you see, it would be very easy to let the devil deceive us into saying, well, you don't forgive. Look at the mistake that they have made. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up until seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say unto you seven times, but until seventy times seven. You know, in Peter's mind, there's a, there's a point in which you say, he sinned too much. He sinned too often. And because of that, I'm not willing to forgive. You see, the devil wants us to believe that a person doesn't deserve that forgiveness. He knows that if we refuse to forgive, we will not be forgiven either. And there's where the great deception is. You see, if the devil is able to persuade me to not forgive you, then the devil knows that he's got me too. Listen carefully to Matthew chapter 6. In verses 14 and 15, as Jesus talks about praying a prayer, he said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if I refuse to forgive, then the devil's got me. Matthew 18, verse 35 so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from your heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. And you see the devil, because of his sly, sinister, seductive ways, is able to persuade us to do what he wants us to do. You see, Satan seduces us not to forgive so what then happens to the man who has been penitent, who said, I'm sorry, walks away and says, what's the use? They'll never forgive me. I can never be okay in their eyes once more. You see, that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he says, you ought to confirm your love toward him, lest such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow to feel like I can't accomplish it. I'd like to use a couple of illustrations. One from the book of Job and then one from the book of Psalms. If you go to the book of Job, Elihu is trying to represent the views of Job. And he understands as Job looks at Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, and Job's trying to justify himself and say, here's what I've tried to do. And so... Elihu is putting words in Job's mouth, and here's what he says. For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? He's saying, what good's it going to do? Even if I had sinned, I couldn't have been right in your eyes. Or chapter 34, verse 9. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. In your mind, if I were to delight in God, you're not ever going to say I'm okay. Or Psalm 73, verses 13 and 14. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. 
For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. You never want a person to get to the point where they say, well, I tried to do right and it didn't accomplish any good at all. You don't want the man who has now turned his heart and said, I want to serve God to never be forgiven. If such were the case, the Apostle Paul could have never accomplished what he did. In fact, none of us would ever be able to accomplish anything. Well, here's the bottom line. I want, I want to really summarize all I've tried to say really under four major things. Number one, Satan wants us not to love one another enough to try to save one another's soul. God loves us that way. You remember Revelation 3 verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. God loves us. That's the reason why He wants us to change. Don't be harsh and be unkind. That's what the devil would like you to do. He'd like for you to say, I'm going to straighten you out now. But listen to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The spirit of gentleness. Satan says, be harsh, be unkind, unforgiving. And God says, be gentle. The devil says, don't forgive. And Luke 17, verses 3 through 5, Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you and saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. We want to do that. Increase our faith to be able to do that. In 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's willing to forgive and the devil says, no, don't you do it. And then the devil also says, give up, nobody cares. David reflected that in Psalm 142 and verse 4. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Oh, the devil would love to persuade us nobody cares. We ought to just give up and give in. But here's the bottom line. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. It may be that you're here this morning and you are not a Christian. God loves you. You may have done some awful things in your past. God can forgive those and will forgive those. If you come on the basis of your faith, you believe that He's the Son of God, you repent of those sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized, the Lord will forgive you of all those past sins. When you come up out of that water, the Bible talks about being 
a new creation, a new creature, walking in newness of life. And it's possible that we can be in the situation of any number of sins and God's mercy is still extended to us that if we'll come back home, He's ready and willing to forgive. We're going to sing the invitation song at Calvary. That's where all the forgiveness takes place, where Jesus shed his blood for us. If you need to respond, please come as together we stand and sing.